0: Hello, and welcome to our nonprofit Coffee Talk podcast. Today, we are privileged to have Darian Rodriguez-Hayman as our guest, digging into the topic of how to create a fundraising board. We are excited to have Darian with us today. He brings a wealth of knowledge and experience to this topic as an accomplished facilitator, fundraiser, social entrepreneur, and author. So just a little background on Darian, his life's work of helping people help. Began during his five-year tenure as executive director of Craigslist Foundation, after which he was appointed as a commissioner for the environment in San Francisco. Darian is also the author and editor of two best-selling books, Nonprofit Fundraising 101 and Nonprofit Management 101. In addition to his active consulting, facilitation, and public speaking work, Darian currently serves as a part-time executive director of the NUMI Foundation and co-founder of the Gender Smart Investing Summit. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Great, yes. And we've had Darian as an instructor on a few of our founding educational webinars over the past few years, and I've seen firsthand how our audience of nonprofit leaders have appreciated his insights on fundraising and working with boards. Can you start us off by describing how you first became aware of all the struggles nonprofits have around fundraising and, and working with their boards?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the the real quick version of my life story is that, um, you know, I dropped out of uh, engineering when I was in college to become a teacher. It's kind of resigned myself to what I thought was going to be a lifetime of poverty. And then one thing led to another. And I wound up starting what turned out to be one of the first digital advertising agencies with some of my college buddies. That business, you know, in short, was really successful. It exploded. We took it global, grew it to, you know, hundreds of people. And eventually sold it uh, when I was 24 years old. And, you know, but it was more than a business, it was a family to me. And so when the economy collapsed in 2000, 2001, I really quickly lost my passion for, you know, what I had been doing. And I went on sabbatical. And while I was traveling the world for six months and really reflecting on my purpose and the work I was here to do, I decided to devote my career to philanthropy and social impact. And so that's what really led me. Uh, you know, through a series of twists and turns to becoming the executive director at Craigslist Foundation, which I basically restarted from nothing out of my bedroom. They hadn't had a board meeting in two years. And in the process of starting that organization, I did a lot of deep listening and I didn't want to just barge into a sector I had, didn't really have experience in thinking that I knew what I was doing. And so I, I really took some time to speak with a lot of different leaders, some of the different players in the capacity building space that were working Supporting nonprofits to figure out where the gaps were. And, you know, initially, the biggest thing that I heard was there's so many different amazing organizations, including, the, you know, this one and this podcast series and the webinars you all host. But there's so many great groups out there supporting nonprofits. And yet, because most nonprofit leaders that start an organization just kind of dive in the deep end with their passion, they don't have a business plan, they don't have a background in the field, they're just kind of building the plane while flying it. And so creating sort of a front door to the movement and really this, my life's work of helping people help was birthed out of that. I created something called nonprofit bootcamp that was really successful and that led to my book projects. And so that's sort of how I got into capacity building work in general and specifically around fundraising and boards. It was actually, I think 2005 that there was a report called uh, daring to lead that came out that, you know, the punchline was 50% of executive directors Left not only their job but the sector within five years, and I this was at the time when everyone was talking about the leadership vacuum and all the baby boomers, you know, retiring, and so, um, you know, and and if you read into that report, it it shared a couple things. The first thing was the number one reason why people why we have a leaky bucket basically, and why leaders were were you know not doing well in terms of their lifespan. Uh, was you know challenges around fundraising responsibility. And the second you know issue at the top of the list was frustrations with their board. And you know, as an executive director that was learning by doing myself, I shared some of those frustrations and challenges. And uh, you know, in the process, I learned a lot of best practices and helpful tactics and tools. And as I started sharing those with other nonprofit leaders, pretty consistently, people were saying, oh my God, this is so helpful. And it's like, you know, I basically, I had the answer key to a quiz and unfortunately nobody had the study materials. And so all of a sudden I made it my life's work to to distribute those insights. And I think in general, in the sector, we see a lot of sort of abstract concepts and philosophies and theories and not enough tactical, practical, do this, don't do that. And so that's been really the work that I focused on over the last 20 years.
0: Oh, that's... That's great and, and so needed. And one of the things that really resonates with me is not just spending a lot of time in the problem space, but you're really giving those tactical, helpful ideas and tools. Uh, so I'll, so let's, let's dive in if you're gonna do that right. Yeah. I imagine it starts from the beginning. Uh, can you dive into the importance of making changes to how you may recruit or is that where it starts?
1: You know, it doesn't really start there because, I mean, I, I all nowadays I do a lot of coaching and consulting work. That study also found that coaching, executive coaching was sort of the number one way to combat EDs leaving the space, which is a big part of what got me into it back in the day. And fundraising and, and board work is sort of my primary focus there. And I do some consulting work as well. What, you know, what I see all the time is nonprofit leaders saying like, oh, my board is useless. They don't really do anything to help And they're just there and it just takes up my time and they don't help with fundraising or do the things I want them to do and need them to do. And I think there's all too often an assumption and a very incorrect assumption that nonprofit board members know what they're supposed to be doing instead of needing to be managed and led and sort of spoon fed. And ultimately, these folks are volunteers, right? And they're on board with the cause and they want to help, but they need to be managed in order to be successful, and that starts with creating a, a culture of accountability and transparency. It starts with making sure, number one, that board, mem- board members know what the hell is their job, what's expected of them, and putting that in on paper, not buried in you know page four hundred and sixty-two of your bylaws, written in legalese, but like a one or a two-page document, a, you know, a board member agreement. It's typically called that just says okay as a series of bullet points in really clear black and white language you know very very clear objective terms what is my job as a board member and it's something that every board member and the chair should be signing so that they're all confirming their commitment and that they know what's expected of them and how the pieces fit together and you know until you do that work it's just the same thing as like bringing new executive directors into the leaky bucket You know, leaky pipeline thing, if we don't fix the underlying problem, you're just going to bring more board members into a dysfunctional board and get frustrated because you're not getting what you need out of them. And this idea that you could just bring in a fundraising board member and everything will get better, it doesn't work that way. If you don't, as the EDA, as the development director, really create the tools to, number one, make sure your board is crystal clear what's expected of them. But number two, give them the tools to be effective, whether it's talking points or, you know, documents and assets they can use to make the case. Um, you know, I, so I think that's one of the biggest pitfalls. The other one is this notion that, you know, a lot of EDs really think that every board member should be comfortable making an ask. And, I, you know, and Kay Sprinkle Grace is kind of one of my shiros and mentors. And she has this whole AAA approach to nonprofit boards and fundraising. And her punchline, at least one of them, is like, not everybody's going to be comfortable making an ask. And if you force them to, it's not going to go well for you or for the cause or your (laughs) fundraising efforts. So, you know, and that needs to be okay, because the whole point is fundraising is not just about the ask. That's like saying, you know, dating is about the proposal for marriage. It's a point of culmination, but there's a lot of work that goes into it and a lot of work that follows it. And that's where you can get your board members plugged in if they don't want to make an ask is you know, thanking existing donors. If a donor gets a call from a board member within two days, 48 hours of making their gift, their lifetime value to the organization goes up by 50%. So that's a great use of board members capacity is just saying thank you, or, you know, coming on a meeting or a lunch, especially if they're the ones that opened up that door, they don't need to make the ask, but they could speak to why they're taking time out of their busy schedule to be connected to this cause, things like that, right? And so- setting up sort of priming the pump, if you will, is step one. And then I think to your question about board recruitment, uh, you know, this is another instance where I think because nonprofits as a rule are sort of, you know, building the plane while flying it, and they're constantly under resourced, and the need always outstrips their capacity, that a lot of times, it's just sort of, you go out to lunch with someone, they seem like, they're pretty cool, they're aligned, they like the cause and you're like hey that would make a good board member, right? But again, why and what are they what are you asking them to do? And we're skipping those steps. And so, you know, I think the most important thing when it comes to board recruitment is being intentional, right? And yes, that starts with a board member agreement of what are you asking people to sign up for, but it should also include a board matrix, which there's plenty of templates out there. I have some I'm happy to distribute as well. But just you know, it's a very it should be a very simple tool that says ultimately what are all of the characteristics that we absolutely need to must have represented somewhere on our board in order for us to eventually fulfill our potential as an organization. And then once you have that baseline of the twenty things that we need, and I like to think of it across the dimensions of expertise and capacity, uh, connections and diversity. But, you know, once we know what we need, then you could take stock of what you have and figure out where you're light and ultimately have a discussion around what are our top three recruitment priorities right now. Because your goal should be that at every point in time, every moment in time, every board member, every executive, every key advisor and volunteer is walking around and in their in the back of their mind, they know we are looking for African-American lawyers with good foundation connections. And you're probably not going to find one person that checks all those boxes, but Maybe someone will check some of the second tier boxes that were discussed or what have you. And so, you know, next time you go out to lunch with the mayor, instead of saying, do you know anybody that we should invite to the board? If you can be more specific and say that, you know, lay out that profile, the likelihood of her number one sharing a candidate or several, but more importantly, sharing candidates that are totally exactly what you need right now is going to go up exponentially. And so that's another example of just being really intentional and mindful as it relates to this work. And these are not hard things to do. They don't take a lot of time to put these tools in place, but it allows you to work much smarter instead of harder.
0: Yeah, yeah, what you're saying isn't rocket science, but it's just getting down what you know is already in your head of what you need or what you may have worked out into your strategy of of what you would like and, and making sure that everybody knows that. And as you said, be intentional. That's great. Yeah, and,
1: and it may well be the case that some of those things lead to more work, right? So if, for example, adding more diversity to your board is a key priority, you know, that's not something that just happens naturally. You might need to make inroads and outreach to other leaders of color in the community that have those connections or post that board position to the board of a historically black college uh, alumni list or whatever it might be. So there might be work that flows out of that. But from a standpoint of just getting your board into consensus and reaching clarity around what are we doing here, right? Who are we looking for? What are we asking them to do? Those very basic questions, you know, I think we skip those all too often. And that's what creates the problems. And then we as leaders blame it on the board members when in fact they're just there as compassionate and and generous volunteers. And it is incumbent upon us to get what we need from them, not the other way around.
0: Yeah. 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 So as you're bringing new more uh, board members on, are there are there steps there or, as you said, elements to set the stage for that accountability and just setting expectations and transparency?
1: Well, I think there's a couple different things. the The transparency and accountability, like for me, that's primarily a factor of the board member agreement. Even though that's only a two page typically document, um, you know, when someone signs a document saying I commit to these responsibilities, and again, it's a volunteer, good faith commitment. So maybe they lost their job, or hey, it was COVID, or whatever, uh, you know. So maybe they're not going to check every box every year, but at least they're clear what they're meant to be doing. And if they fail at any of those, you can have a frank conversation about was this a one off or is this a chronic issue, in which case should we transition you to a different role? But for me, that's really the foundation of that basis of accountability. Um, you know, another tool that gets into that is um, a consent calendar, a consent agenda, which there's different versions of this out there but the one that i really champion and use and it's probably been the most transformative tool i've used as an executive director is actually a three-part tool and it includes the minutes which people are used to sort of distributing and nobody talks about them they just say like approved as read second you know next and it's just this perfunctory thing that adds zero value to the meetings but ultimately the the problem that the consent calendar is you know designed to address the way i use it is that Unfortunately, most nonprofit board meetings are kind of a waste of time and for a very consistent reason, just like most nonprofit conferences are a waste of time because they get great leaders together and talk at you for three days and then send you home, um, you know, instead of getting people into conversations. Same thing is actually true at board meetings where you get this amazing high-powered group together. You wind up just talking at them for the two or three hours so that they can be up to speed and effective ambassadors of the cause. They ask a couple clarifying questions and then they go home. And that is a total waste of time. It is a horrible waste of time for those leaders because all they're doing is just getting a little, you know, update Um, and you're not moving the work of the organization forward. And ultimately, if you want your board to get more engaged in fundraising, whether it's contributing or raising money, getting them more connected to the work so they have a sense of ownership over your impact is the goal right? And the way to do that is to make better use of your board meetings. And so, yes, of course, you need your board up to speed on all aspects of your operation. But literally, if you do it right using this tool, it should take no more than 10 minutes at the beginning of the meeting. And the way that you do that is, like I said, it's a three-part sandwich. So the first thing you see is an organizational dashboard, just a one-page heads-up display, just like you see in the car. What are those key performance indicators, the metrics? And usually there's only about 10 or 12 that cover not only the operational and financial side of things, how are we doing relative to our income and expense targets and everything else, but also some of the programmatic indicators, right? We're a homeless shelter. How many beds do we have filled towards our goal, et cetera? And looking at these not only as a factor of your annual targets, because if you're at 17% of goal, is that good or bad, Right? But looking at them compared to year-to-date targets, compared to where we're supposed to be at this point in time, we're 30% over budget on income. Hooray. We're 40% over on expenses. Oh no, what's going on there? Oh, we raised more money, so we're spending more. No problem. But the point is you have these sort of benchmarks and then you report against them, which someone can literally look at in about three seconds. If all the colored indicators are green, it's like, okay, steady as she goes, the ED is doing a good job. Like, let's move into the meeting, right? So that's the dashboard, the meat of the sandwich, which really is what gets rid of all of those PowerPoints and all the wasted hours and meetings are the executive summaries. And the the key point here is if you have any agenda items on, on your board meeting that have the word report or update in them, they are probably a waste of time. And instead of preparing a PowerPoint, talking at the board for an hour and then taking questions, condense that update down into no more than two paragraphs. So it is literally the Cliff Notes version of like, what do I as a board member need to know about our finances, our programs, our facilities, our HR, board expansion, whatever, the the FYIs, the updates that they do need to know about, but like they don't need all the details, right? And anything that was blinking red in the dashboard, by the way, you do need to spell out. But you know, you do that at two paragraphs a pop, so it's gonna save the staff a lot of time. It's gonna almost treat the board like heads of state where you get a dossier before you head into a big meeting and they get all the information they need to know. Um, and then finally come the minutes, which I like to condense down so they're no more than two or three pages. We don't need all the he said, she said. It's just the really key takeaways and, up- and discussion points. And more importantly, you're gonna use formatting to highlight two things to make them jump off the page. One is any votes that were taken or commitments, you know, votes taken or agreements made by the board. The other is any commitments that were made, any action items where someone said, I will make an introduction to a plumber by next Wednesday or everyone in the board agreed to call three donors and invite them to the gala, whatever. Those things are all like jumping off the page. And so the idea is you distribute this in advance, but you spend the first five minutes of your board meeting in silence as people read or, hopefully reread this three-part packet. You take any clarifying questions at the end of that, and if anything takes more than 30, 60 seconds to answer, it's not a clarifying question, in which case it can go on the agenda or go to committee or whatever you want to do with it. But everything that's left gets approved as read. And you know, and once that uh, document, that packet is approved, that's when, like, if you've ever seen The Matrix and Neo learns Kung Fu in, like, five seconds, that's when their board Kung Fu is fully downloaded, And now, like 95% of your agenda is freed up to have a fundraising brainstorm or a discussion about we have a choice to make. Do we do this or that? And, you know, the things that we don't as leaders know the answers to, that's the real value. That's the juice we get from our board. It's like, hey, let's brainstorm how to solve this problem or we have this opportunity or how do you think we should handle X you know, the, that is really where you get the value from the board. And it's also by, you know, nature, what connects them more meaningfully to the work and makes them want to get more involved in fundraising.
0: Wow. Yeah. I'm on a couple of nonprofit boards. <laughs> I'm just getting all excited and want to, you know, take this away. This is great. me um, <laughs> <laughs> how to improve those meetings and, and, and just get everybody focused. Yeah. Uh, it's really um, not
1: that hard. But again, yeah. everyone's rebuilding the plan. Like everyone's like re- reinventing yeah. the wheel because it's, it's very different. Like with a business plan, if someone's launching a business, you would never see a business plan without a competitive analysis. But in the nonprofit world, like your mom gets sick or somebody wants to run out and start an organization, they very rarely take the time to do the landscape analysis, see who else is out there, how they're different, you know, go get a degree so that they have the skills, et cetera. So The entire sector, and bear in mind 50% of the nonprofits in this country, over a million and a half of them, have budgets underneath $100,000. So, you know, on the whole, it's a very small grassroots sector that's very fragmented with a bunch of very well-intended and passionate people that are kind of running out there and just like going for it, which is amazing. And in my experience, with a little bit of help and with a few pointers and templates and tools... You know, people can be vastly more impactful with their work, and that's my life's work.
0: Yeah, that's great. Just that—that that operational, the the gears around making all that passionate even passion and and effort more effective. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been talking about boards and you know getting your board uh, aligned and and knowing what what their purpose is, but. Let's dive a little more into the fundraising element of mm-hmm. boards and and how do you get your board to to fundraise and help support that effort?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think again, the the biggest mistake that nonprofits make is expecting everyone to make asks and and I would back off of that assumption. I do think it is absolutely imperative and this should be made explicitly clear in that board member agreement that everyone on the board should have multiple Expectations of them as it relates to fundraising. So first and foremost is that everyone must contribute every year. Uh, you know, and in in my experience, rather than saying you know that we have a give get target, which is very common, I actually am not at all a fan of a give or give give or get. Number one, because it's a give or get and just because you help to raise money or you make an introduction that turns into funding, That should not release you from your responsibility to make a personal contribution um, because as nonprofits grow and expand, you will increasingly get asked, especially by the institutional funders, the foundations, the companies um, that you go after. And especially when you go after bigger grants, you'll get asked, what is your board participation in fundraising? And that's a term that means what percentage of your board gives. People generally don't care what how much they give but they wanna hear that everyone on your board gives, and if you tell them anything less than 100%, they'll tell you to go ask your board for the money. So it is critical from a standpoint of you know, supporting the work, and also if you're gonna raise money, you gotta be able to say, I want you to join me in supporting this work, not I want you to do something I haven't done myself. That's why peer asks are the most powerful form of fundraising ask. Um, so it starts with personal giving. You know the, the next piece of the puzzle that should be made explicitly clear is that everyone's, you know, and, and uh, you know, rather than saying everyone has to give a thousand bucks a year, 10,000 bucks a year, I like the language of, of requiring a personal capacity gift every year, especially if you have a diverse board where you might have someone who's formerly homeless and you might have a, you know, head a, a named partner in a big law firm. And if you want to try to come up with a lowest common denominator and say 50 bucks, that partner in the law firm gets off pretty easy. And if it's a hundred thousand, that homeless person's not going to join the board. So just, you know, simply saying everyone gives a personal capacity gift as defined as the largest gift you can comfortably make. You decide what that means for you every year. Uh, And it's one of your top three philanthropic investments for the year. You want to give more money to 10 other groups, you should probably join their board, not ours, right? So that's step one is like everybody gives. Step two is everybody opens up their Rolodex. And even if you're the formerly homeless person or whatever it might be, Maybe you're identifying potential board members or in-kind supporters or certainly donors or gala sponsors or whatever it might be. Uh, and I like to put a number on it. Again, I like to be super crystal clear and explicit. Typically, it's you know three introductions, five introductions a year. It's not a big number, but it's like everyone on the board should make at least five introductions a year. And the nonprofit should support that effort by on a quarterly basis, probably say, here's what we could most use right now. Sponsors for the Gala, funders for this program. We are you know, about to have a bunch of construction work done, and we'd love to find someone in kind that could do it at a discount, whatever. Oh, now I can think of someone, right? So that's the second piece is kind of what would you know, historically be thought of as the get, except it's not necessarily the board member getting it. It's the organization through their introductions and then typically I'll also have a, some language in there that you know as a board member all view fundraising as a core responsibility I won't be forced to ask if I'm not comfortable but that I will support the fundraising process whether that means thanking donors hosting a house party except you know giving them a few examples but the point is everybody views fundraising as a core responsibility of the board and they each come up with an annual plan so the counterpoint to the uniform by design board member agreement that looks the same for every board member and it sets that lowest common denominator of what are we all committing to is what's called a personal development plan and typically on an annual basis i would combine this with an annual board survey so once a year you know you put out a survey monkey or whatever you ask people for 20 minutes of their time and it starts with how are we doing how are we doing as an organization, as a board? How do you feel you're performing against your goals, et cetera? And any kind of tips and insights there of what we could be doing better. And then it moves into what are your personal goals, right? If we have a, a board member agreement in place so you know what's expected of you, okay, everyone's gonna be on a committee, for example. Which committee do you wanna be on? Everyone's gonna make five intros. Who are some of the people you think might be helpful? And and you know, just basically setting out your personal, individualized fundraising goals for the year ahead And really making clear what support you need from the staff and the board to fulfill those. And that's another thing. It's just setting those intentions and being really explicit and strategic about what is each individual doing. And then the final piece of the puzzle that I would say is the key to success is making sure that you properly equip your board members. Because what you do not want is, number one, them either like winging it or using language that is not appropriate. You know, I've worked with some really well intentioned board members uh, who are more religious than the organization they represent and they're kind of, you know, sometimes they bring more of that language into some of their materials. And it's like, okay, we appreciate and respect your personal preferences, but we are fundamentally not a religious organization. And so that's not necessarily appropriate. But either way, like the organization should put some time and energy, ideally in partnership with the board, at really clearly and compellingly and concisely articulating what I would call all of its fundables. And by fundables, I mean each of your existing programs, uh, your organization as a whole, and then any other like big ideas that you're not doing now, but that if someone wrote a big enough check, you'd love to do and they're totally on mission. And maybe that's gonna be a total of, call it six or seven things. For each of those six or seven things, you should have a 45 second elevator pitch that is really, really super clear. And aside from the what, which nonprofits are really good about saying like, oh, what do you do? Oh, well, I work at a homeless shelter and we feed the homeless and provide vocational training and healthcare. But all too often, I do a lot of elevator pitch and positioning work with nonprofits, especially as it relates to fundraising, we almost always skip the why. And this is literally as simple as adding one or two sentences to your elevator pitch, that before you dive into what your homeless shelter does, you're starting out by saying like, oh, well, what do you do? Well, most people don't know that one in 10 people in San Francisco are living on the street, the majority of which are women and children. And you know, at uh, St. Vincent de Paul, we believe that Every person in the Bay Area should have access to the tools they need to fulfill their God-given potential. So what we're doing about that is we have a homeless shelter that provides vocational training uh, so people can help them, you know, helping people help themselves. We provide for their basic needs with healthcare and, you know, bedding or whatever that looks like, right? But the point is just by adding one or two sentences about the why and then also maybe a half a sentence about each of the programs and why those, what are they intended to unlock in terms of impact? now all of a sudden you have a much more compelling pitch. It's still 30 to 45 seconds, but if you take the time to create those six or seven or however many fundables you have, those elevator pitches, and you put them on paper, you put them in paragraph format or bullet point format, so different people who think differently, have all those in their back pocket, you maybe even put together a couple email templates, like a little one paragraph about us, and you give that material to the board So number one, it makes it a lot more efficient for them. They don't have to try to invent something from scratch every time they want to open up a door. But number two, you're optimizing and synchronizing your language so that it is as compelling as possible, but it's also consistently applied. And if I'm a donor and I'm learning about your organization, I'm not hearing two vastly different descriptions about the work you do and why it matters.
0: Yeah, yeah, having all that pre-made and it really does arm people of different skill sets and capabilities but gets people on the the message and just even as you were giving the examples it's it's a huge difference of just what but if you preface it with the why you know the the hair on the back of my neck is going up and I'm into it. I'm I'm like oh this sounds great you know and 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 more into the story of yeah how can we solve this problem? That's great. Uh, Wow. Where'd the time go? Uh, I can tell you. Just have I mean,
1: I, I love so <laughs> And it's like, again, I just feel like I've kind of like discovered a few of the keys to the kingdom. And it's all been through trial and error, quite frankly, because I literally started Craigslist Foundation out of my bedroom. And like, as I was teaching other nonprofits about best practices, I was learning myself in the process as an ED that had plenty of struggles and challenges, and then since then over time, whether it was writing the book or the keynotes or the consulting and coaching work I've done, and I've gone on to lead several other organizations, um, you know, and also be a board member. I'm on the board, board of Planned Parenthood for Western Hemisphere right now, and even a large, really mature organization like that with huge budgets and large staff of amazing leaders, like, Uh, you know, even some of the biggest organizations out there struggle with some of these same things. And so once you learn the sort of hack, if you will, of like, oh, this is the way to solve that problem. Because what I've discovered is pretty much every nonprofit solves, you know, is wrestling with some of the same exact problems, especially as it relates to fundraising and boards. And so uh, over time, I've just come up with this toolkit and come up with these proven approaches that I first field tested myself. And then I've worked with clients on and you know, some of the stuff doesn't work. The things that have worked very consistently and in fact been transformative, those are the, the tools and the tips and the sort of the tactical resources that are my go-tos and that I love sharing with folks.
0: Yeah, yeah. Where where do you get the the biggest payback in, in terms of enjoyment from what you do now? And it,
1: it... You know, um, on, a, on a personal level, the fact that I'm a new father is definitely like, my, my son's <laughs> almost five now, but that is a very fulfilling to sort of, He's the embodiment of why I'm building a better world. Um, But, you know, this work preceded him for sure. And I think um, just getting to see the nonprofit leaders who are facing some of the struggles that I've been in the trenches facing myself and then just kind of giving them a little escape hatch um, so that they can they can short circuit some of those challenges. And instead of struggling for a few years, they struggle for a few weeks and then jump to the head of the class Um, And then I start hearing about their fundraising successes and some of the clients I'm working with now that just got, you know, a transformative six figure gift to buy their building or the donation of a refrigerated van to deliver food to the, you know, to the needy or, you know, all kinds of stuff that it's just like when they get those wins and when it actually works in the real world, Um, because the thing we're not light on in this sector is passion, right? Everyone here is really well intended, you know, and, and the, Biggest challenge, I think, is like kind of the raccoon effect that because there are so many problems in the world that if we run after every single one of them, like a raccoon chasing every shiny object, we don't get anything done. And so the ability to focus and try to think about, you know, what we can actually do and how to prioritize and what are the things that are going to move our work forward with the best ROI, with the least amount of time and energy and money in, but the greatest impact and value out. Those are the things that, you know, I find nonprofit leaders need more than anything. And the reality is because we're all solving the same puzzle, if you look to the veterans, if you look to the people who are comfortable sharing their lessons learned and breaking it down in really clear, do this, don't do that frameworks, which are actually kind of hard to come by, unfortunately, like usually you get the big abstract concepts like I was talking about before, but the really directive, concrete uh, practical and tactical tips—that's the stuff that I find missing, and that has become the source of my life's work as I strive to, you know, focus on this helping people help mantra of mine. I
0: love that. I love that, and I know here at Foundit, we we have a, a similar mantra, and and through our expertise of of software, you know. It, Helping people in that their desire and their passions and and the good work go forward and in terms of removing these barriers. Yeah. I Think of it as like what are
1: what are the ball bearings to social change? Right. Like how do we reduce friction, create efficiencies? Cause like everybody's working hard. That's not
0: (laughs) not the question,
1: How do we we like move the ball forward and really like affect these issues? Because there's so many different leaders that are pushing this big boulder up the hill. And how do you, you know, turn the hill onto a downslope so we can actually get some headway, turn it into dominoes?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, I I really appreciate your time. I mean, I know you have so much even more to share, but I I know a lot of that's in in your books. I've put the links to your two books in the show notes. Uh, Nonprofit Fundraising 101 and Nonprofit Management 101. And I'll also include the links to the recording of the two webinars I mentioned earlier. You partnered with us to do that uh, resilient fundraising in 2021 and adjusting your strategies to today's reality. And it was just so value back as well as the building fundraising boards where you speak a lot of of the things that we talked about today. Are there any other resources we should highlight or places our listeners could go to connect and learn more about you and your services?
1: Um I don't have a you know an agency website or anything like that. Thankfully I've been too busy to to do something (laughs) like that. Um you know blue avocado I was the editor in chief there for a while. That's a really great resource for nonprofits, really concrete and directive. Uh, I'm really active on LinkedIn and I encourage people to follow me there. I'm always happy to make introductions to funders and stuff like that. But I'm also quite frankly, happy for you to distribute my, you know, my personal mobile phone and my email. Uh, I always make time after webinars, keynotes, podcasts like this. Uh, If people want to reach out to me, I'm always happy to offer a free, you know, a pro bono coaching session just for like 15 or 20 minutes to find out a little bit about their cause. Uh, You know, if there's one or two really pressing challenges that they're facing to, point them in the right direction and, and hopefully move their work forward. And like I said, this is what I do. So I'm uh, at the disposal of, of you and uh, of your community.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate all these great tips and advice you've you've shared today, as well as that offer to connect with our community. That's great. Uh, you know, improving fundraising results and optimizing how nonprofits leaders work with their boards. I, I could see the difference that'll make. So, mm-hmm. We appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. And we wish you and all of our listeners the best success as we all look for ways to, as you said, help people, help people. So any parting comments?
1: Um, you know, I, I think um, the the last thing that I would say is that we're the leaders we've been waiting for. I feel like all too often we're sort of waiting for someone else to come in and fix things, whether it's the right board member or the right donor. And, we are the, you know, the heroes, we are the sheroes that we've been waiting for. We're the people that are here that are committing our lives and our careers to creating the just and the equitable and the thriving world that we all know is possible. And ultimately, in the last 20 years of doing this work, what I've learned is that the rope is stronger than the thread. And it is really only when we come together as a community that true transformative and systemic change becomes possible. And so... Uh, You know, I just really want to thank all your listeners, not only on behalf of myself and on behalf of, uh, you know, our host today, but I want to thank them on behalf of the millions of people they collectively serve. It's a privilege and an honor to do this work. And I hope what they've heard is helpful and it leaves them not only inspired, but inspired to action.